Gary Ford, founder of Tiger Hobbies Limited. Welcome to Business Unlimited. Thank you. Great to have you with us. The wealth of knowledge you've got about the hobbyist world. We want to pick your brains and bring some of that out during this conversation and find out a little bit more about the business yeah. and what it entails. But I'd like to go back in time, first of all, as to where it all started and your background, because what you don't know about military models is not worth knowing. So where did that start? Where did the passion and the enthusiasm for the hobbyist world even get going in the first place? I'm from a generation, I was born in 1959, so we're talking the 60s generation as kids growing up. And really, it's the film Battle of Britain. For the first time ever, you could buy yourself a dinky Spitfire and a dinky Stuka and a dinky Meshman and a dinky Hurricane, which as young kids, that was a thing to have. And of course, there would be so many people that would have remembered making those FX models back yeah. in the day as well. Yeah. So that's really where it started for you. Yeah. What about career? Where did it lead you career-wise? Where I come from in South Yorkshire, we were often known as the last generation. Every person in my school got a job. Hmm. Often, we were like sat in a room at school and the people come down from the local coal mine, Ittleton, and say, right, we're taking 50 boys this year. And you're going to be one of those 50 boys. My dad, a coal miner, did not want me going down the coal mines. And academically, I wasn't brilliant. I'd suffer from a little bit of dyslexia. I didn't realise at the time. And I thought, I've, I don't want to go down the coal mines. So I decided to join the RAF. I tried to join the RAF when I was 13 years old. And obviously, they kicked me out of the, kicked me out of the careers office because I was too young. And then not long before me, I think I was still 16 when I actually joined the military. I couldn't get a, a great job. I wasn't going to be a pilot or an engineer. I was stuck with either, you know, cook, steward, logistics or supplies and was then. So I, I chose supply. But that passion for the yeah. models that you'd be yeah. making as a boy, that clearly was what was driving you. Yeah, forward, I suppose it was, yeah. Where did the business spark come from then? I did what you call a local purchase course. It was only a three-day course, a local purchase clerk. What, what happens is that the Royal Air Force doesn't have a central hub for everything. Certain things, it's not worth it. So locally, you can procure mine things, buckets, stationery, ironing boards. In this course, it told you how to look for a deal, how to look for signs of things like price fixing, cartelling, how to get a reasonable bid. This is really basic, but it is the basis of all purchasing, isn't it? Absolutely. And obviously later on, I did more advanced purchasing costs and stuff like that. And you probably started to learn about P&L and how to make a profit Correct. and margins and markup and all of that yeah. stuff. And then, so I have to go out towards the end of my career and I got promoted to sergeant. I wanted to stay in the operational side of the Royal Air Force. I logistically going overseas, unloading aeroplanes. So bring us up to date then in terms of the foundation of Tiger Hobbies and the business, all your experience in the military world, plus that business experience that you were building, it's pretty obvious that they could converge together for a, yeah, for a uh, business of your own. So I was moving house sometime in 1996, or cleaning out my parents' old house, and what I found was box loads of old airfix kicks and one-legged action men. I thought I'd get rid of these. So I went to the cow boat, walked away with 400 pounds. While I was wandering around, I'd sold my stock. How much of them cars? Toy cars or toy airplanes? Oh, they're a pound, mate, pound. 50p for lot, deadlock, right, bag, took it back, we stole, sold for a quid. Boom. Boom. And that's literally <laughs> how it started. Obviously, I moved on fairly quickly, but for about three years, car boots, toy fairs, 
bric-a-brac fairs. That's how, how, how it started. Wow. But obviously, I've, because of the knowledge of my military history passion, I started waning way to things like tanks, fighter planes, bombers, battleships, models and stuff like that, where I knew, and as well as looking at the bargains and things like that, all toy soldiers from the 1950s, yes. 1960s, I got into my book, Plastic Soldiers, in the history of these things, and I'm, I made a very good living. It's probably worth at this point making a distinction between what some people listening might think of as toys yeah. and what? the hobby world and hobbyists. Yeah. Because actually, if you start describing these things as toys to a hobbyist, they'll probably start blood draining from their face. So what is the distinction here? Right. That's interesting. Yeah. It's always toys. Toys are obviously the, where it come from. I would say the mid-90s, perhaps going back earlier, there were some specialist companies. Have you heard a company called Franklin Mint? I haven't. Yeah, Franklin Mint and Danbury Mint. They started doing collectible pieces. These were toys. These were like a statue of, I don't know, could be Darth Vader or something, but much more than a toy. But they were very expensive. Around about the mid-90s, an old name came back in the world of collecting, and it was Corgi. They had always been there selling toys, but they rebranded them as Corgi Classics, and they were producing these models, not for children to play with, but for adults to collect. And what they produced was buses, old taxis, 1950s trucks. And then in 1998, they brought out a little model of an aeroplane. And I, th I got onto it. And then within a year, they produced a Spitfire and a Messerschmitt from the Battle of Britain. And I sold loads of them. And that's really, I've got to thank, who is my greatest competitor when it comes to selling diecast model aircraft, collecting model aircraft. It's Kogi, they started it. There's no doubt about it. You clearly made a business out of it. So just describe your business model. Tiger Hobby is based here in South Yorkshire because it's both importing, but it's also it's wholesale and retail. So you've got different elements yeah. to it. Uh, so I started off with cow boots. I then left the Air Force in 2002, got myself a little unit, decided straight away I didn't want it in my house. And it was a base for me going to the cow boots and coming back at night and unloading and locking up and going up. But then I started going further into the supply chain and finding better and better deals. And before you know it, I'm on a plane to Hong Kong, where I meet the people who are my, I suppose, one of my main suppliers, Hobby Master. Now that came about because of a failing by one of the companies, which was, was Corgi. They went bust in about 2006. So Hobby Master, which is now worldwide bigger than Corgi, came from Corgi's failure. Well, of course, you've come through Brexit and the yeah. pandemic and Brexit for you yeah. in terms of import tariffs, you know, not to be yeah. sniffed at. You've had the pandemic. So just describe the challenges of some of those and where you're at now in terms of the business model and the mix yeah. of revenue streams. So very quickly, I decided that I didn't really want to do retail with Hobbymaster. Suddenly the opportunity to sell to trade to B2B rather than B2C. And I made sure that... I realized that you needed to keep a core of your business, like the wheel or a car, so the central core, and then you're gambling little bits at, at the end. So I wanted to, to really focus on the B2B side of the business. And because I knew how to use a calculator and work out P&L and stuff like that, and work out and very quickly got to know about import duties and tariff codes and getting the best of a logistical solution. So I was very, very good at making sure Again, that's what I was looking back at my logistics experience in the Royal Air Force. 
making sure that I maximized my logistics space where I was paying for Which was about maximizing profit. And I knew some of my competitors were not doing that because I could see the difference in price. I knew a new sort element was poor logistical problems, so not sorting the logistical problems out. So that understanding of relationships in price, between margin, volume. Volume, yeah. Right brain works yeah. in a cubic capacity. Which is weird. the language of business, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So building from there, clearly you've built something of big momentum now. Yeah. So just summarize then what the pie chart looks like at the moment. What's the mix of B2B and B2C in the business as it stands? The majority is still obviously B2B. That is the, the reason we are in business. I would say 15% is retail. 85% is B2B, but it is growing. And the, the surprising thing about it is the fact we've noticed the last six months an increase in B2C because of the perception of outbound businesses. Some of our traders are not buying our, our trade. And I can always tell when our traders are running out of stock because it suddenly starts going B2C off my shelves because people will find it. And they're happy to pay me the recommended retail price rather than a nicely discounted price by one of our traders. Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So where does that take you then? What does the future look like? What's the vision moving forward for growth? What we've looked at is we've introduced a thing which I was playing around with for about two years, but now much more official, called call range. Taking a small percentage of a range and saying, right, renegotiate with the suppliers, buy bigger numbers, get the FOB and the landed cost down, put a fixed percentage profit margin on that we want, telling our traders it doesn't matter if you buy one or 500, it's the same price. So we found that, I suppose, well, let's talk about the uh, one of our brands called Ryefield, which is a World War II or armored fighting vehicle range of tanks and vehicles. We've picked, took 15 key lines. So what we call brain butter lines, bought them in bigger numbers, got the price down, dropped the retail. So what that gives is a full trade margin for our trade customers to sell to better price. But we're not getting the phone calls or messages saying, oh, your retail price, you're ripping people off. Well, we're not. It's just that we're not discounting it. Now, we don't have to discount it. We're not controlling prices because they're still, because it's got a full trade margin. And all of a sudden, we took it to us, introduced it to a show at Bolton, the International Passing Mothers Society event in Bolton. And we sold about 30 pieces without any effort and came back to another 25 to 30 online on Monday morning. So growth is looking good for you, actually, in a month. It is. Always, yeah. And we're going to maybe expand that core range. And we've got core range on Ryefield. We've got core range on Obimaster as well, which has been running before that and quite successful. We've got to be careful not to cut out elements. But within distribution, you've got, obviously, the importer that I am. And then you've got to put a margin in for a wholesaler whose job is to sell to some of the smaller retailers. Then the retail margin to go to a shop and finally the price that the consumer is going to buy. What a lot of people are doing, and there's much evidence of this, is elements of those supply chains are being cut out. Some of it to the extreme where they're cutting out all the trade totally and going from importer straight to B2C. It has its problem. For instance, if there is a, a problem with your product, rather than dealing with like 20 or 30 
trade customers who can get their problem from their retail customers to them, and then you're only dealing, say, with uh, 20 or 30 retail trade customers, you could be dealing with thousands. Could be a logistical nightmare then. Yes, it could be. Okay, yeah. fascinating. Well, look, I suppose just to wrap it up, I mean, you've been in this now 25 years or so, haven't you? So. Yeah, 20, 20, 2000. Really, 1996, very much part-time, full-time since 2002. What lessons have you learned along the way? Where have you recognised that you needed to change, you needed to adapt, you've learned some really important business principles? What are the key ones along the journey, do you think? The problem is... Like a lot of businesses, we've been reactive to the situations that's been hitting us, where really you need in business, once you get to learn your business, you've got to start trying to foresee problems coming in. And one of the reasons I think we've got through the pandemic, through Brexit, through the shipping crisis, where a container went from £2,000 to £12,000, is we could see it coming. I was briefing my staff about the pandemic at the end of December of 2019 because we were talking to my Hong Kong colleague that says something's happening in China. So at least you had some foresight. Yeah, and as a result, yes, I got COVID and it nearly wasted me. But as a result, we only had two people with COVID, Mm -hmm. me Mm -hmm. and Greg, one of my warehouses, with COVID. The rest of them stayed COVID-free. And I really hammered it away. Stay away from crowds. Keep off public transport. We made sure that all the workstations were properly separated. You wore masks when dealing with courier drivers. We were very, very disciplined. As a result, we had really little or no, apart from me and and Greg, we didn't have much COVID in uh, in, in the work. As a result... We kept the business going very, very well throughout COVID. I think that's such an important principle to keep your head up to what's happening, the trends in the marketplace, not using the market as an excuse not to invest yeah, yeah. or to... Same with the shipping crisis. Same with shipping see, crisis. See that happening. Let's get the older calculator out. Let's look at cubic capacities. Let's look at density. If it's small, it's dense. It's easy to ship. We get maximum out. I was hearing horror stories of people paying 25, 30, and 40% of shipping costs. No price for going through the roof. All they had to do was stop, think, speak to your suppliers, speak to your customers. It's better to hold back a little resupply and get to the a better yes. price. And of course, you know, those ships that are having to go around the Cape, yeah. instead of through the Red Sea and into the, the Suez Canal, it's not such a is. it's not such a big deal then it's if you years. if you yeah. crunch the numbers. Yeah. Interesting. Well, look, Gary, fascinating to talk to you. Clearly a wealth of knowledge and experience, as I said. If people didn't know of you before now, they will know of you now. But if anybody wants to get in touch, either for more information or to start looking at how they can access your products, yeah. how can they get hold of you? We've now uh, streamlined the what you call the trade portal. So we're now selling direct trade on the website, which is a little cheesy, especially for the smaller, just starting out, stuff like that where we say buy little and offer rather than buy a lot of me and I don't see you for six months. www.tigerhobbies.co.uk Got you. Straight Brilliant. Yeah. And, and what about direct contact? Is there a phone number? There is. You can contact on 01709-890-940. Well, Gary Ford, founder of Tiger Hobbies Limited, great to hear your story. I think that your positioning and profile in the hobbyist world is only going to go up from here. And uh, it'd be fascinating to see where it ends up for you. Yeah. Thanks for your time. 
Okay, thank you.